The Chronic Illness Therapist podcast is meant to be a place where people with chronic illnesses can come to feel heard, seen, and safe while listening to mental health therapists and other medical professionals talk about the realities of treating difficult conditions. This might be a new concept for you, one in which you never have to worry about someone inferring that it's all in your head. We dive deep into the human side of treating complex medical conditions and help you find professionals that leave you feeling hopeful for the future. I hope you love what you learn here, and please consider leaving a review or sharing this podcast with someone you love. This podcast is meant for educational purposes only. For specific questions related to your unique circumstances, please contact a licensed medical professional in your state of residence. Dr. Antonia Struthers began her career in school psychology in 2016. Being that she was diagnosed with a chronic illness in childhood herself, she had a strong desire to increase the knowledge, resources, and supports in the education system for children and adolescents with chronic conditions. Dr. Struthers then decided to return to school to advance her studies and move to clinical work, and thereafter obtained a doctoral degree in school psychology in 2020. She currently works full-time as a postdoctoral fellow, providing psychotherapy and evaluations at a private mental health practice in northern New Jersey. Her work most specifically focuses on chronic illness, anxiety, depression, grief, body image, and eating concerns, as well as with neurodivergent individuals. She also strives to assist patients, parents, and families in navigating education in related topics such as school, post-secondary, and college supports like IEPs and 504s, as well as workplace accommodations. Why don't we start with you telling us a little bit about where you work, where you practice, who you kind of work with the most, and just anything else that feels important about you personally or professionally. Sure. So I practice in Tenafly, New Jersey, which is northern New Jersey, and I'm a postdoc psychologist, which means that I'm at the end of my training, very end, which is exciting. I should be licensed soon. And I, I work in a group practice with a number of other clinical and school psychologists as well, which is really nice. My background is in school psychology specifically. So I spent years prior to private practice working in public schools in New Jersey, pretty much pre-K till 21 years old. So I got a really nice range of experience there and then wanted to transition to clinical work a couple of years ago. So that's where I am now. I and see when you uh, say transition to clinical, are you in private practice? Well, you, you said a group practice, but does that mean instead of working in the schools, you are now kind of working in an office, kind of talk therapy or? Yep. Yeah. So we do. So I work, yes, in private practice and I do mostly therapy, but I also do some assessment work as well. And sometimes I'll do consultative work too, just kind of helping families navigate things like special education services, you know, workplace accommodations, transitioning to college and, and trying to determine what accommodations could look like there, things like that. So I have kind of a, a wide range of services, I guess I can offer, but mainly therapy. That's just something that I'm most passionate about. So that's the bulk of my practice is talk therapy with 
children up until adulthood is kind of the, the age range I see, although I do probably see mostly children and teens. Again, that's just kind of, you know, the way that I like to format my practice. Given my school psych background, I really, really love working with kids and teenagers. So I typically take on more patients in those areas and that those age ranges. There's also not a lot of child therapists out there, especially those that specialize in chronic illness. So I really try to, to see a lot of those patients if I can. And yeah. I do probably the bulk of my practice is working with neurodivergent children. So children with autism, ADHD. And then I also do a lot of anxiety work as well. And then of course, the other bulk of my practice is working with kids with chronic and adults with chronic medical conditions. Awesome. Yeah. And do you find that within chronic illness specifically, there is also a lot of ADHD or other neurodivergence happening? I do. Yeah, I do see that quite often. And I don't know exactly, you know, the, the science behind that, but I do know that it isn't uncommon, I think, especially with autoimmune diseases, because they are so complex to really impact people in a number of different ways. I think especially once people reach adolescence and above, it's it's not uncommon for them to have like numerous types of chronic medical conditions, syndromes, or also, you know, just be a neurodivergent individual as well. And maybe there's a connection between the nervous system and, and how that works. But yeah, I do see that quite often. And are you able to speak a little bit to when it comes to like assessing for ADHD or even autism as well, especially as an adult, can you talk to, I'm trying to think about how I want to word the question, when, so when you're assessing for this, how you know the difference between like, yes, you have ADHD, or these are symptoms that are happening as a result of, say, trauma or a really stressful time in your life or something like that. How do you differentiate between those two, if, if at all? Sure. Yeah, it, it can be complex, certainly. So I think what's really nice, if, if you can, is having access to a wide variety of assessment tools. And that doesn't necessarily have to look like, you know, your cookie cutter assessments that are scored and, you know, that spew out a bunch of stats, but just really being knowledgeable and gathering background information, doing really good clinical interviews and things like that can be really important. So you can really better understand when certain symptoms have begun and what those look like over the course of a life a lifespan, especially if there was trauma at some point or other kind of more, you know, medically related concerns happening as well. And so sometimes I find that really spending a lot of time early on in, in those testing appointments, gathering as much information as you can from as many reliable parties as you can, especially if you're working with a child, is, is super important. So I always incorporate not only parents, you know, for children, but also any other providers that are necessary that really understand that, you know, that child's brain and have worked with that child. So if there is a therapist that child is seeing, certainly teachers, maybe a psychiatric provider, another medical provider, specialist, really covering all of your bases can be super helpful in those, in that, you know, that area. I hope that answered your question, but. <laughs> yeah, it sounds complex and takes yeah. a lot of, it's not just a, a test you take. And I think that that's a common misconception right now, especially with a lot of the, I see, I'm seeing them all the time now, ads for like, let's like, I just saw one literally 30 minutes ago that was like, online diagnosis for autism for your kids and it's like 
I don't know what that company does or how thorough they're going to be, but I'm just seeing a lot more of these kind of like fast food kind of assessment websites popping up. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It, it is concerning. And I think a lot of people, especially with, with autism and ADHD, probably even a little bit more so with autism though, I think, <clears throat> and I, I find this too, just even in consulting and things like that, I think people tend to think that they have a good understanding of what autism looks like. And a lot of people don't, especially with individuals that maybe have different needs and, you know, have gone a long time without a diagnosis for various reasons and are now really, you know, feeling like that's something that they want to explore, whether it's for accommodations or just because they want to have that information for themselves or they're self-identified. Yeah, I think I think it is something that, you know, it's it's great. We obviously want to have more people that are that understand autism and can provide those services for people that want and need them. But it is concerning that there are a lot of those like yeah. kind of, you know, maybe a little bit unethical things that don't really look quite, you know, I don't know what the word is, maybe based in research or just, you know, that person might not have the clinical skills that you might want when, you know, searching for that type of a diagnosis, again, for whatever reason it is for that person. So can you talk a little bit about some of the misconceptions about what autism looks like and also what ADHD looks like, and then maybe talk a little bit to how that's playing out right now. And like right now, a lot of people are searching for these diagnoses. Yeah, sure. So I think that there's a lot of misconceptions specifically with the social skill, I should say, using quotes there, aspect of those diagnoses. You know, I'll hear often like, oh, you know, that person can't have autism, can't be autistic because they are making great eye contact or that person has so many friends. What do you mean? They're, they're not, on, you know, they're not autistic or, you know, that there's no attentional deficits because, you know, this person has gotten A's and B's their whole life in school without any accommodations. So I think those are big misconceptions that we hear often. And I think a lot of times people don't take into consideration things like masking, especially as the chi- that, you know, child or individual gets older, you know, people tend to learn unconsciously how to mask to protect themselves from things like ableism that we, you know, hear so often in society. And so it could be that that person is heavily focusing, whether subconsciously or not, on trying to fit all of these cookie cutter standards that maybe neurotypical people feel is what someone should look like, right, you know, in a social setting, whether it's, you know, really trying to maintain eye contact, because that's something that they've heard that they struggled with for years when they were younger, or, you know, taking hours and hours and hours to prepare for a class, so that they can be the most attentive they can in that moment. So there is a lot of these internalized things going on that are very difficult to see, right, because they are internal, unless the person has a pretty good understanding of what that looks like and can ask the right questions and explore that with the person, whether it's in therapy or, you know, if it's for an assessment. And I also think then, you know, there's this other kind of area where, you know, people that identify as female tend to also be really overlooked with both of those diagnoses. So I think that, you know, that's something that we probably need to talk more about as well. I I probably see if I could like look back at my caseload from the start of my career till now, probably more, you know, people that identify as women, especially in young adulthood, 
college age, I should say, and up coming for those types of assessments and that type of validation from an assessment for a diagnosis like ADHD, autism, or both, because they felt like they've been struggling with many things for years and, and have seen, you know, numerous providers from different specialties that have just said, no, it's just mood related, you know, or your grades are great, like I said earlier, so you can't possibly have this or that. So that comes up quite often too. Yeah. How how would someone know, like say someone comes in to, to see you for talk therapy, not an assessment, and what are some of the telltale signs that you might see in a client who they're not even, they're not even thinking about an ADHD diagnosis yet. Cause that's not even like something they have thought about, but you are sitting across from this person and you're like, ah, this is evident. Like this is really a big part of what you've been struggling with. What are some of those telltale signs? For me, I would say, it's a good question. Usually I like to ask a lot of questions about how long and what that person is doing to either prepare for something, whether it's school or work related or just like everyday daily living tasks. That's something I really like to explore first. And I think it could be very quickly overlooked and it kind of ties into what I was saying before. You know, I think sometimes people don't even recognize because it just becomes so subconscious or they're just used to doing things the way that they always have. And that's, you know, that's what's typical for them that they might be putting tons and tons of extra energy into just trying to fit into this cookie cutter neurotypical society that we all live in without recognizing that that has added to a lot of, you know, mood symptoms, stress, possibly burnout, whether it's again, school or work related or just daily living. And so sometimes I think we need to ask more questions like that, you know, what does that look like for you? How are you preparing every single day? What tools are you using? Are, is that working for you? Is that causing you more stress and anxiety? You know, and that could be, you know, something that could kind of lead to maybe talking about a diagnosis like that more, or also just, you know, asking questions about how they feel like they learn, how they feel like they, you know, socialize and interact with other people. Oftentimes people that might be neurodivergent tend to also get kind of either misdiagnosed or overlooked because sometimes providers, I think, think that things like social anxiety are the only thing that's present or OCD is, is the only thing or the, or the thing that's present, let's say, without really digging further under that surface and understanding, you know, more about what that looks like for that individual, how they kind of go through their everyday life and, and what aspects of that maybe are becoming way too difficult and and just unmanageable for them because they aren't having access to the resources and the help that they might need, whether it's just within themselves or, you know, oftentimes the environment, right? Just because, you know, the environment we do all live in tends to kind of be, you know, more easily accessible for people that are neurotypical or that don't have, you know, chronic medical conditions and things like that, that aren't disabled. So, yeah. yeah. Would it be fair to say that if you had a client who was kind of coming to you and just talking about how I'm thinking the typical, like nothing's wrong with my life, but like, why do I feel this way? You know, it takes me so long to get out of bed or, or I just can't seem to get organized. Like I just, you know, I'm rushing around every morning and I know I should have a morning routine, but I just can't. Like, are those kind of some of the things you might hear? And would you add to that? 
Yeah, no, I think that's, that's, those are definitely some things that I hear often. And I think the overlap between an anxiety disorder and something, let's say like ADHD can be kind of tricky to differentiate. Usually both are present in in my opinion. Usually I always say like, usually there is, you know, an anxiety disorder and maybe even a mood disorder present because this person has lived without the knowledge and resources to help them you know, feel their best, you know, function, you know, you know, functioning wise and just internally, you know, with that ADHD diagnosis that maybe was never given to them or talked about and explored with them. So usually that anxiety is kind of secondary to untreated ADHD, essentially. And I think it's important to remember that maybe one of the main differences we should be looking at between, let's say, ADHD and anxiety is, are you having really trouble, are you having this trouble focusing or trouble staying organized because of strictly just something like fear or apprehension? Or is it because you find yourself becoming, you know, as an example, easily distracted? And and that's, I think, the key point that sometimes is super easy to overlook because even that ADHD diagnosis, right? Like, what does that mean? It's attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. That doesn't even really explain what that diagnosis is. It really is a dysregulation in attention. And so I know I can go off on a tangent about this. I also have ADHD. I didn't say that earlier. I'm neurodivergent myself. So sorry if I go on tangents, but yeah, I would hope that that diagnosis itself could even get changed to something that makes more sense in the future, essentially. But yeah, I think distinguishing between those things can be difficult. But usually, I think the anxiety and mood is is quite often, it's going to be secondary to ADHD or autism. Those are neurological or neurodevelopmental disorders. We don't acquire them, you know, in life. We're born. You know, those are the ways that our brains are born. So, right, right. There's a pretty big like Instagram. She's autistic, ADHD, and she does a lot of advocacy around that. And Sunny some, something. The lived, oh, yes. The lived yeah. experience educator. Yeah. And they just posted yesterday, I think exactly what you just said. Like the, the name isn't right. So their suggestion was just AH attention hyperactivity. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. (laughs) I was like, that's perfect. (laughs) But yeah. So going back to the like ADHD and then obviously we've been talking mostly just about ADHD and, and autism this whole time. You also specialize in working with chronic illness. That's my specialty as well. And while there's either, sometimes there's overlap, sometimes there's not, but I still think that the symptoms of like fatigue and difficulty getting organized because whatever the reason is, whether it's because your brain is neurodivergent or because you're so fatigued because your body's, you know, fighting or whatever it is. Can we talk a little bit about accommodations, just things that people can do for themselves at home, but then also accommodations at work and at school? Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah. I think brain fog definitely comes into play, right? For a lot of those medical diagnoses that we probably both treat for sure. So it can definitely look and feel quite similar to difficulties regulating attention because on some level you you are, whether you, you know, have a diagnosis of ADHD or not. So I think at home, you know, it, of course it's always tailored to the person, but 
sometimes I like to think that I, I like to use spoon theory when I'm also helping someone explore ways that they can better accommodate themselves because it really can be different depending on that day, how many spoons they have, how much energy they have. I start with that conversation usually first because I don't want to enter into that discussion with a patient and the understanding on their end then be that they have to like maintain something that might be too unrealistic or difficult for them, even if it does seem wonderful, you know, in terms of accommodating themselves. So I like to first start with, let's remind ourselves, we don't have to necessarily follow all of the things we're gonna come up with on a daily basis. It can really be based on how you're feeling that day, but let's try to explore, you know, what might be best for you in general. And then we can think about what some things are on that list that are easier maybe take less energy, less spoons to do, and then some of the other things that might be a lot more based on how you're feeling. Or maybe you need to get some you know, support from, maybe from a partner or a parent. So at home, it really could look you know, something small. It could just be, let me think, maybe just you know, taking five minutes on a Sunday night to you know, organize all of your medications in a little organized medic, you know, I don't know what they're called. I have one myself, I'm blanking, but like the little pill organizers that go from right, right Sunday to, you know, to Monday. So they're like seven day little pill organizers. So maybe you take a few minutes just to organize all of your medications for the week. And that way, every day, you can just grab the one for that day and kind of go and not really have to think about it, not have to worry that you're going to forget to take something. And just that little time to start off your week could be so beneficial for the entire week. So that's something that sometimes a lot of times people will will find useful and, and that can be relatively, you know, simple and straightforward versus, you know, something that might be, that might take a little bit more energy. Um, maybe you're putting off things like, you know, laundry or other chores around your house. And so maybe one day you, your goal is just to put some clothes from the floor of your bedroom into the hamper and that's it and then maybe you work up to a day where you have more energy and you could put those clothes in that washing machine but maybe you're not ready to turn it on yet and so trying to break things down like that and see what's going to be less overwhelming and and more you know accommodating for that individual so there's just little things off the top of my head yeah I like that example because I think when we start to talk about, I mean, even the like taking five minutes to organize your pillbox, like I think it's important to illuminate sometimes what happens in our brains when we start to try to do these tasks. And if you have a ton of medications and you even are like, okay, which one is one time a day, which one is two times a day, three times even, or, you know, I'm taking this one, like, you know, for X, Y, Z, and I'm taking this one for that. And it's a lot in your brain and and that alone could be a hindrance to why you might even do something that sounds so simple as organize myself take five minutes to do it for the whole week and I think once we start to shed light on what is happening in the brain like what that process looks like it's like oh I feel seen I feel heard and this like obstacle this mountain doesn't feel so so high yeah absolutely yeah and of course, as we know, right, if it feels that overwhelming, that's when the anxiety kicks in and then it's only going to further alter our attention, right? Especially if we're already so fatigued or we're having brain fog, it's only going to make things seem so much more difficult yet. And, and a lot of times in those situations too, especially for the, you know, my patients that I see virtually, we will practice these things together in session first, if it seems too overwhelming for them to do on their own. 
So we'll do things together in session, you know, whatever that accommodation looks like, I can kind of help guide it, see if there's anything I could recommend that might make it even easier. So sometimes that's super beneficial for, for people as well. Sometimes I'll even do that if we're talking about like helping somebody with accommodations for school, um, especially college students. Once people go to college, they have to fill out and access, figure out how to access those accommodations pretty much on their own, even if parents are helping. Usually college disability offices will say parents cannot fill out this paperwork, even if there's a release, like it has to come from the the that, you know, the child or, you know, the young adult in that case, which is really ableist in and of itself, but that's a whole other topic. So, you know, sometimes I will literally just have a session with a patient and we're just going to look through that specific college they're going to together. I will guide them with how to apply for those accommodations. I will give them the letter they need from me in that session so they could do everything at once. They don't have to call anyone else. They don't have to submit anything else outside. We're doing it all together. And that could be really beneficial, not just to take a lot of the burden off of them, but also for me to be able to guide them and how to do it on their own, you know, one day if that is something that they feel that they can do or need to do, so. Yeah, I agree. I've, I've done that with clients too, helping them fill out the paperwork in session. It just, there's just something about having somebody, well, it probably speaks to the body doubling concept where it's easier. Can, do you, can you explain that concept? And I know it's probably more of a social media term than like a clinical term, but. So, you know, I think that, that ability to really see things modeled for you and see the way that somebody is really breaking something down can be so beneficial to just take that and really learn and adapt it to their to their lives even with young children that i see if we're talking about you know how to you know help a child kind of stay more organized with the way that they're preparing for school in the morning in a way that's going to minimize any dysregulated behavior and things like that and maybe play therapy comes into play there too. But I think really being that stand-in for that person, really showing them what that task looks like and, and the ways that you can execute it, even in, in the number of different examples, if you want to kind of give them, you know, some strategies that might be a little bit more difficult to start with, or also break it down even further. So they know, okay, like if something is really complicated, I don't have to necessarily go right into, you know, let's say like sending this email to this person at this disabilities office, I can just draft the email first. So I think that can be really useful just being able to model that for them. And that in that way, that's more individualized to what they need. I don't, is that what you were asking? Yeah. I'm it's a different concept, but that was really important too. like, yeah, just being able to see something done rather than someone trying to tell you go do this thing. That's just so I mean, it's, it's overwhelming and it's confusing. And so having someone to kind of hold hands in school, in schools, they, there's a concept, it's called scaffolding. Mm -hmm. We kind of hold your hand until you're metaphorically hold your hand until you are completely capable of doing that thing on your own. And then you do it on your own, but right. then there might be the next step up that you're not able to do completely on your own. So again, we hold your hand until you're able to do that. And we just scaffold up the ladder until, we, so it's, it's not about pushing you to be at like ultra independent. It's just, it's actually about supporting you all the way through until you genuinely feel capable of doing it on your own. Not just like, okay, I, I got it now. Like I can do it because you're feeling shame about needing help. So yeah. I think that concept is, is equally important. And then 
in social media right now, there's just this concept of body doubling. I don't know where the, the term originally came from, but it's essentially, I mean, there's even a Facebook group where like, you just, you lot, you like ask somebody like, Hey, five o'clock tonight, like let's get on a zoom chat and we're not even going to talk. We're just both going to do our own project. And it's like just having somebody else right next to you, even virtually it's like, okay, now I'm able to stay motivated and like do the thing that I'm trying to do. And I, for me, I just see that as like in human nature, we, we thrive in community, especially supportive community. You know, community can also be, can be really toxic too. But uh, I know for me, even it's like, if somebody is here at my house, like I can, I can clean my whole house top to bottom, but if no one's home, like getting one foot off the ground is it's like a brick weight on my foot <laughs> yeah definitely that's interesting I haven't I definitely want to look into those Facebook groups that's really cool but yeah I think too like there's an aspect of that that's also some of these tasks might be so frustrating maybe it's not even that they're overwhelming or both right <laughs> but even if there's a person you know who's coming to me and it's just like it's not that I don't know how to know I don't not know how to do this thing. I just like cringe every time I think about doing this thing. I just like hate doing it. It's frustrating. I don't want to get it done. I know I need to. Sometimes just being able, I guess in this case, right? Like being that body double for that person to help with that productivity and even to show them like, okay, maybe this is really frustrating because it's so boring. And I totally get that. Let's figure out a way together to make this a little bit less boring if we can. And even just having someone else there, that alone might be the thing that takes that boring edge off. Yeah. Yeah. But that's definitely a good addition to the conversation. Absolutely. Yeah. So we've talked about, we've talked about body doubling and, and mirror neurons, which is what we were kind of talking about before having people show you the way when it comes to fatigue again, regardless of the reason why, what are some of the things you help clients navigate when it comes to, again, whether, whether it's like getting appropriate accommodations or, because we talk a lot on this podcast already about self-compassion and doing what you can and like navigating the, the balance of that. And so I am more curious about maybe accommodations at work. And of course, fatigue looks different for every single person. So I know that's a, a broad question, but Maybe you can even kind of describe a situation or a client, a pretend client, and then an accommodation that you might help them receive or try to receive. That's a good question. Let me think. So I can talk maybe a little bit too about the younger individuals I see too, because I think maybe I was speaking more to older individuals before, so that might be helpful too for for this for the listeners but I get and this might we might want to edit out for a second because now I'm thinking about this <laughs> it's like problems <laughs> <no> problem. <laughs> I think okay so let's say they're I'm working with a child who is experiencing tons of fatigue after school which happens so often for a variety of reasons whether it's the child's like we were saying it could be anything but whether they're neurodivergent whether there's medical issues going on both you know it's really difficult to sit in school for x amount of hours seven plus hours for most kids and then have to do homework after and so that can be a really difficult and dysregulated time for a lot of kids especially with fatigue and, and burnout at that time of day so usually what I'll try to work with with the school and, and with parents is seeing 
what that child can accomplish, you know, so maybe English, you know, reading and writing might be their favorite subject. So that might be something that they want to start with first, because maybe it's easier for them, maybe they really enjoy it, you know, certainly after like a break and a snack and all these other things that we talk about too, but just relating it back to the school side of things, what I'll tell parents is, at the end of the day, put post-its on anything that the child was not able to complete and send it back to the school. And maybe the school can find a time to work with the child to reinforce some of those things if necessary. Or it's also a way for us to see, hey, maybe we have to modify this down. This might just be not realistic for this child right now. Do we have to give 20 math problems when they can show that they understand well enough with five, right? So sometimes that could be useful too, is to just, and it takes a lot of the burden off of parents to feel like they have to sit there and force their kids to do all this work. That's just not, it's not realistic for that child and it's not necessary. So um, that's the way that I like to partner with, with the family and the school to help that patient see what they can do. Let's send anything back without fighting. We don't want to hurt the child-parent relationship at all, you know, because that's really important, obviously, first and foremost, in my opinion, and getting homework done, and then taking it from there. Do we need to modify further? Do we need to change the way that we've been giving this material? You know, maybe that child does need to have an audiobook, especially for those days that just sitting there and reading something for 20 minutes is way too challenging. And so we sometimes that can be really useful too to figure out what accommodations are going to be best for that individual, you know, especially during a time that tends to be really, really difficult for most kids and those, you know, most kids that might have these other kind of unique needs. That was perfect. Yeah. I really liked the example you started off with of like maybe we start off with a subject matter that they enjoy and they like, and it it just gives you momentum. And I think a lot of times we, I mean, we even have a lot of like sayings, like eat, like eat eat the frog or something. It's like where you do like the, for the hardest thing first, like get it out of the way. But I think when you are always doing that, you're just like kind of teaching your body, like you have to fight. You're always having to fight so hard. And it, of course, again, it's individualized. So maybe doing the the hardest thing first is what works for you. But I have found even for me too, that when I start off small and slow steps and build up, I'm going to be able to get more done. And it's not going to feel as like draining and just utterly hard. Definitely. Yeah, absolutely. And I think too, for a lot of kids, the, the, the transition from school to home and then for many kids, you know, with activities, then from an act, from, you know, home back to another activity to back home. It's, it's a lot for a lot of children, especially if we're talking about neurodiversion children um, or children with, you know, disabilities. So sometimes I'll even say, okay, what's the heaviest day for that child? You know, maybe it's Tuesdays that they have two dance classes after school, or they have, you know, violet practice and then soccer. And those are things that that child needs and wants to participate in. We don't want to take them away from that. If that's what they are thriving in, that's, you know, a way for them to access their, their specific interests. We don't necessarily want to remove that. So maybe on Tuesdays, the child is sent home with less homework because, they don't need all of it, you know? And so sometimes I think that could be useful too. I think sometimes, at least on the school side, we just think about these like blanket accommodations or modifications in 504s or IEPs. And it's so easy to not think about, well, what does this kid need? And 
how can we diversify it even amongst the days of the week for them if that's what's best? So getting really creative and really incorporating what that child needs. And that also includes including that child in the conversations too, which I love talking about. Even little, little kids. Like I start at the youngest ages I can, you know, even if a child can't fully communicate, of course, with parent permission and consent to include them in that conversation. It's so important. I think a lot of times people think that really young children can't possibly, you know, provide us with that information, but they're tiny humans and they're the most important person we're talking about, right? To help. So that's a big piece too. Yeah. I think that's so important. Thanks for mentioning that, especially if you're the type of person that does, has a strong resistance to like authority or, you know, nobody, nobody really likes, I shouldn't say nobody, but I know I don't like being told what to do. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think some kids like thrive off of like very clear instruction and they kind of do want someone to say like, this is where you're going to be and when you're going to do this and that. But I know I certainly never did. And a lot of my clients, same thing. So when you, when you invite the kid into the conversation, it just gives them a bit of not even control necessarily. I mean, that's a part of it, but also just it's prepping their brain for what's about to happen. We talk a lot about you know, low frustration tolerance, especially around transitions with ADHD, autism, like transitions are really hard from one class to another, or like to get in the shower or get out of the shower. But I think a part of that, it's obviously a part of it is how our brain works. And I think the other part is like, we kind of just expect to like drag kids where we want them to go. And they're just supposed to like, be okay with it. We don't prep them. We don't, but when yeah. your brain is like aware of, oh, this is what's happening next, it just gives you that. It's sort of looking for comfortable. Com- it makes you a little more comfortable with what's going to happen because you're prepared. Definitely. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. It's it's so funny too because I think oftentimes as adults we forget that you know there are a lot of things we're either asking children to do or wishing that they would or could do that we might not even be able to fully do on our own or like really, you know, get pretty easily frustrated by, right? Like, especially when I see some of my young patients with like all of these different responsibilities, most of which they really probably don't need to be doing. And I think, well, if that was how my life looked like right now, obviously in a more age appropriate way, I'm not going to be doing like, you know, a couple, you know, filling in sentences and drawing pictures for homework, but if my life looked that busy with all of those different things and responsibilities in that specific way, I would be really overwhelmed and task avoidant too. I'd be like, there's no way in hell I'm doing all of this. Like, you know, so why are we expecting them to? So yeah, I think that's really important too is yeah, just making sure that we're, we're really being realistic. You know, I, I love, oh gosh, oh, Ross Green, who's a psychologist. He, he's awesome. He talks about different, like, you know, collaborative problem solving with, with kids. And I, his biggest kind of statement, I, I think, is kids do well when they can or if they can, right? So if a child's really not doing well with something, it's probably because there not because there is not probably there is a reason why and we need to figure out what that is. You know, it's, it's probably something that you know, is akin to putting too many responsibilities or unrealistic expectations on that child without also including them in the problem solving in those conversations to see how they're actually feeling and thinking about that thing. Yeah. Yeah. And then to bring it back to like chronic illness and specifically with adults who basically lived their whole life like this, where 
they didn't have someone advocating for what you're talking about right now. So it, it was just, you show up, you sit down, you be quiet, you do as you're told, you go where you're supposed to go when you're supposed to do it. And so if you grew up like this, eventually you learn to shut down your impulses, shut down your desires, shut down your wants and your needs. And you do just learn to like, quote, fall in line, but you're miserable and your body is like screaming at you every day in a myriad of ways, whether that is exacerbated chronic illness symptoms or constant headaches or just a lot of tension in your body. These things I think are all a result of a very restricted society. Um, you know, having asked to go to the bathroom and not being allowed to sometimes or not being allowed to eat when you're hungry. And there is a little bit of like, if you eat every day at noon, like your body does learn to adjust and adapt, but everybody's just so different. Like you might truly need to eat at 10 and 12 and school doesn't allow for that. Or So yeah. I think for adults who are, you know, just now learning how to, what we're, you know, we're talking a lot about lately reparenting your inner child. It's, it's really this stuff, like allowing your body to send you signals and tell you what it needs and then figure out how to give your body what it needs, even though that's a really hard thing in the system that we're living in. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. Yeah. Even for me, you know, growing up, I had, you know, a pretty, I have a pretty complex medical history. I, I tell this story often. I'll never forget. This is one of the reasons why I went into school psychology is I was, I was on home instruction quite often. And one time in high school, I was, I think out for like almost three months. It was like the end of the year. And I remember the school calling my parents and saying that I was likely going to have to repeat 11th grade because I had missed too many gym classes. And I was pretty much bedridden for most of that time in and out of the hospital. So I laugh now just because it's like that, you know, you have to, it's ridiculous. It's not mm -hmm. funny, of course. And you, you think about that and you're just like, where does this come from? Like, where do these arbitrary rules and regulations? And also, how are you making that determination? I also never had like supports in school, like through a 504 IEP because I just, my parents just didn't know what that looked like. And I, I didn't know as a kid. And so I didn't have those protections either. So, you know, that just, I think speaks to a lot with what we're talking about is, you know, it's really, really challenging when you're getting all of these really mixed or just super ableist opinions and, and rules being placed on you for what you should and shouldn't be able to do. And you're just sitting there thinking, well, I can never amount to that because I can't physically do that. So then what, what else is left for me here? You know, so yeah, really supporting our clients in those ways is so important, especially, you know, you know, adult patients or older patients really thinking back to like what these moments looked like in childhood and how we can process that together. Yeah. yeah. How did you, how did your parents, did you, you didn't repeat 11th grade, right? No. No, I did not. <laughs> what was that fight like? Or what was that conversation like? Gosh, yeah. So my parents, I have great parents. I'm, you know, I'm so I, certainly the fact that I didn't have those supports, I don't want that to seem like my parents were like not supporting me. They just didn't even know that those things were apparent in school. And this was like the, you know, not that long ago, but like 90s, early 2000s, you know, things are changing a lot with like special education and accommodations and all that stuff. 
so yeah, that conversation was very much like my mom, I think, like storming into the school, <laughs> demanding to talk to the principal. So it didn't go over well for them. So she definitely advocated for me. She was like, yeah, that's never happening here, that we're not doing this. So I always felt fortunately, like really supported by my parents in those ways. I just always knew I had an advocate there. And I wasn't at any point, I think that worried, even at that age of like 16, that I was actually going to repeat it. I think I even remember like being in bed and like laughing when my mom told me because she was like so angry and I was like this is so like it's just funny for me you know as a teenager so fortunately I, since my parents are so awesome I didn't have to really like worry about that or see that oh this is a possibility or I'm not going to have anyone that can advocate and support me here as I'm bedridden and, and confused and scared about this huge you know shift in my educational future that I have to repeat this grade right so I didn't have to really worry about that. My parents are great, but you know, that's not the reality for a lot of kids. And, and even in my case too, we still hold on to those things, right? Like, you know, I, I didn't, I don't see that as a specific moment of trauma for me, as opposed to some other things, just maybe because of the way my mom handled that so fast, but sure. it was right. Like one of those things that did lead me to this career you know, to really be a voice, not only for kids, but I love working with parents and being able to give them the knowledge and the tools to really be able to support their their kids in school. And I, and I think most schools do want to help and do the best, but, you know, they're limited too. So working with the school, being that I know what it was like to be on the school side of things and helping the parents to help the child, it's really important. Yeah. I think it's important for people to even hear like how your mom stormed into the school and you know advocated for you because <laughs> I think like depending on how you yourself were raised and now you're a parent you might be too scared to do that so you might really really want to advocate for your child and something similar might be happening but if no one ever advocated for you and you were taught to just again like shut up and follow the rules essentially you might have no like you are not going to do that but then maybe just someone hearing your story and it's like, whoa, her mom did that for her. Like, I can do that too. Like, it would be really hard, but I can do that. Yeah, definitely. I talk about that a lot with parents. So often I hear from parents like, oh, like I'm too nervous to say or do this thing. I don't want to be quote unquote that parent. And I spend a lot of time processing that with parents. And ultimately we, you know, come to this understanding together where that the idea of that parent, right? is a parent who is advocating for their child, who is willing to fight. I'm not saying, you know, we have to do anything that's that, you know, we're not condoning violence or anything like that, but sometimes we have to get loud too, right? And I think that's a, another thing that people don't often talk about or maybe feel uncomfortable with because there might be this bias and maybe more so for women that, you know, oh, this, this, you know, this mother, let's say is, is becoming really frustrated. And so we're going to label that as bitchy. Right. So I hear that a lot from moms, especially like, I don't want to be that mom. And we, you know, I help them come to that understanding that that mom is actually the mom that they are and want to be and should be, you yeah. know, and sometimes we might have to get a little loud, like my mom did, you know, and sometimes we don't, but we still advocate and we still, you know, are that voice for that person. It's so important, especially for kids to be able to see that, you know, modeled for them and to have that, that advocate and to learn how that can look, you know, again, once they reach an age, if this is possible for that person to begin to advocate for themselves, it's just so important. Yeah, yeah absolutely. 
Is there anything else that comes to mind around this conversation that you'd like to talk about or that we haven't touched on today? Yeah, I think, well, maybe just on the school side of things too, the other thing I can think of is, you know, I see this like often asked a lot online and, and talked about in professional circles is, you know, how do we make a 504 plan or an IEP more inclusive and really what it should be, which is individualized to that child, but also in a strength-based way. You know, if, if you look at most 504s or IEPs, they're probably just going to heavily focus on weaknesses. And I also want to preface this by saying sometimes the person in, in charge of you know, completing that document, whether they're called in New Jersey, we call them case managers, it might be called something else elsewhere. Sometimes that school professional doesn't necessarily have a lot of, you know, say in maybe how things are going to get worded, they might be, you know, being told by like a supervisor or somebody that they have to kind of just word things and maybe a more weakness focused manner. So I understand this might not always be realistic for everybody. But even if there's little changes that can be made that are much more strength-based and, you know, student-centered, that's a really wonderful way also to make sure you're not only supporting that child, but helping them understand what it is that they need in school, especially when they are included in those meetings, which I always recommend for kids, especially, you know, once they get to like middle school and above, if not sooner, if it's necessary, you want them to be able to see these documents and understand them. It's really important. I used to teach my students, I was with high schoolers for a long time, I would literally like show them all of their IEP and explain to them what each section meant and things like that. It's so important when they, if they're going to college or applying to any other accommodations after high school that they really understand that. And you want them to look at something that's strength-based and not just heavily focused on weaknesses, right? And so really trying to note like different abilities, you know, they are, the, you know, the student is having difficulty with this versus they, you know, always have difficulty with this or, you know, the student is presenting with, with, you know, these unique needs, right, is another way to kind of word things in a more inclusive manner. And again, including them in those discussions and in, in their supports, getting their viewpoint and opinion and perspective is obviously always important. I know I sound like a broken record here, but we so often are like, I think schools are just, you know, there's so much on educators plates. And so it's really easy to like, not remember to stop and think, wait a minute, did I even ask the student anything about this? So it's so important to make them feel included and, and supported in that way too, to help them really advocate and especially in post-secondary settings to know what the disability looks like, what they need and how to access those supports. Yeah. Yeah. Just for listeners, another resource is the Job Accommodation Network. I don't know if you use this. Do you use this website? I have, yeah. Mm -hmm. We used it a lot in my work as a clinical rehabilitation counselor, but yeah, it's not like the most robust site, but it is a good starting point. If you just like, just don't even know where to begin and you can click on almost any diagnosis is kind of listed there. And then it will say, or, or even just symptoms. Like I think it even has a category of fatigue. So like accommodations that you can, you can ask for if you have extreme fatigue or ADHD or, and so that's just one place to get started. But then also obviously working with someone who is well-versed in accommodation. So that might be a clinical rehabilitation counselor, although most of them work in like state agencies, but it also would be something like a school psychologist or is there, is there anything else you can think of that like another professional that, that someone could reach out to? 
Yeah. So sometimes I know in New Jersey, we have this unique track for individuals that receive special education degrees and experience working as special educators, where they can kind of go and get these advanced certifications. They're called learning, I think, what is it? Learning Disabilities Teacher Consultants, LDTC is what we call them here. So sometimes those providers actually work not only in schools, of course, but also they might do some private consulting work as well. And, you know, those are individuals that have that firsthand experience with those children in the classroom. And so they often have a lot of knowledge of IEPs. They've been in charge of maybe case managing IEPs in the past. So that might be something to look into just, you know, for school psychologists specifically in general, just for like general resources. I don't know if there's a place necessarily to find like consultant work, but the National Association of School Psychologists or NASP, their website has a lot of great resources as well for parents, for, you know, for professionals, for individuals. That could be a nice place to to look just for some resources there too. Yeah. Great. Thank you. And is there anything you want to leave our listeners with today? Piece of advice or any offerings that you have or just anything that you want to leave them with? Sure. I think, you know, really just trying to make sure we're remembering that our strengths matter, you know, not just our problems, not just our areas of need. We, we don't want to make any assumptions about anyone else's abilities or competency levels. I think that's a big thing, too, that we talk a lot about. You know, language really matters and accessibility and accommodations are out there. And it's so frustrating that it can be so overwhelming and difficult to get that support. But there are people out there that are willing to help and that can help, whether it's online resources or someone, you know, you can hire or you can connect with in person. I, I like to always share too that if this might make someone feel a little bit more validated is, you know, I grew up with, with Crohn's disease specifically and some other medical issues later on. I'm an ADHDer and I specialize in a lot of this work. You know, I was a school psychologist, like I said, now I'm in private practice and I had to access workplace accommodations in the past. And despite all of that stuff, lived experience, professional experience, it was really stressful and overwhelming. So I understand like it really, the, the access to the accessibility is so overwhelming at times and it's frustrating, but there are people that can help. There are people that get it. There are ways to make it a little bit easier for you. And so, you know, don't shy away from getting that help if you feel like you can, even if it just starts with a therapist to kind of help you guide, guide, help guide you through that is, you know, is something that's available oftentimes. And yeah, I don't know if there's anything else. Even just working through the shame, like that comes up as a result of not being able to quickly or easily or seamlessly accomplish something like getting accommodations, like a therapist if, if all they're helping you with is shame, let's say they know nothing even about ADHD and they're just working on with shame with you. Yeah. That's still a great place to start. I mean, Definitely. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here. It was such a pleasure to talk to you. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. This is great. If you learned something new today, consider writing it down in your phone notes or journal and make that new neural pathway light up. Better yet, I'd love to hear from you. Send me a DM on Instagram, email me, or leave a voice memo for us to play on the next show.
The way you summarize your takeaways can be the perfect little soundbite that someone else might need in order to better absorb the same lesson. Lastly, leaving a review really helps others find this podcast, so please do so if you found this episode helpful.